Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of 1 Corinthians, first from the first chapter and then the third chapter. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gifts as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no division among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you are not ready, for you are For you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wage according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. This is God's word. Thanks, Susan. Good morning. Uh, My name is Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. Uh, And as we get started in a a new series, uh, new year, new worship folder. So as Joe already mentioned, uh, the tear-off is no longer in the pew. And I'm just reiterating some of the things he's already said uh, because, uh, well, I just feel the need to. The community Bible reading is on one side of that tear-off, and the tear-offs are printed on cardstock, so hopefully uh, they will last you through the month, because it has the month's worth of community Bible reading on there. And then on the other side, if you're a guest with us or you have uh, never filled out that information for us, we'd love for you to take a moment and do that. Uh, But one of the best things about the, the, uh, the new worship folder at least from the perspective of Drew and myself, is that if you fold the first third back, you have the sermon passage and the outline uh, all together to where you're not flipping back and forth with the insert like we used to have, okay? So hopefully uh, 
hopefully you'll find that useful uh, because you can look at the passage and you can look at the outline uh, at the same time. That said, uh, we are, as I mentioned, in the beginning of a new series on the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, we went through portions of chapters 1 and 2 during the Advent season, but we're going to take the next six months. So this is going to take us all the way to June. Um, and the book has 16 chapters anyway, so it's a long book. But we're going to take a look uh, and work our way through this letter of Paul to the church in Corinth. Well, I need to give you a bit of background with that said, uh, just so we have some idea. Where's this letter from? Corinth? Uh, how did Paul get there? All of that stuff. Uh, in the book of Acts, in chapter 18, Paul actually planted the church in Corinth. Luke records it for us there. And then says that he stuck around about 18 months to kind of help the fledgling church get its bearings. And this is, I mean, church planning for Paul was establish a church, pray and lay hands on elders, and then head off to the next place. And that's very much what he did with Corinth. And most scholars believe that the letter of 1 Corinthians was written somewhere around four or five years after he left the city. So it's a church he knows very well and cares deeply for, and presumably he kept in uh, contact with all the converts, or at least a number of them, uh, when he did leave. Uh, One thing that's always difficult about the first sermon in a series on a book is to to try and set the tone and highlight some of the themes that we're going to hit over and over throughout the series, and I want to try to do some of that this morning, as well as looking more closely at the passage before us and some of the issues uh, that are brought to bear uh, in those verses that Susan read. But over the course of the series, what we're going to see is that Paul deals with all kinds of issues that arose within the church, and obviously those same issues have application for us. Uh, but the main problem for the Corinthians from which all the others seem to stem, is that they've forgotten who they are. And if you have a Bible or you uh, can turn quickly in the Pew Bible, you don't have to, I'm going to read it to you anyway, but it's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, that we did not read today. But Paul says this in his opening, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, or some of your translations may say, called to be holy. The, the problem was, you see, the Corinthians were still behaving like they belonged to their city rather than God's city. That their primary identity was Corinthian rather than Christian. And Paul's aim in writing this letter is to urge them to adopt a way of life that's more in accord with their true ownership. One commentator says it like this, each of the community problems Paul needed to address grew out of the Corinthians' inability to let the gospel message fully reshape their Gentile, Greco-Roman lives. Christianity demanded that they enter another theological and ethical world. And at the end of the day, the Corinthians were simply trying to be Christians with a minimal amount of social and theological disturbance. Now, it's a lot of big words in there, but suffice it to say, he's he's trying to get at the fact that the Corinthians couldn't or wouldn't allow the message of the gospel to fully penetrate into every nook and cranny of their life. And so Paul has to go back and address a lot of problems they were having and a lot of practices that they had begun to institute as a 
church. And part of the reason they had done that is because they had not allowed the world of the gospel, the theological and ethical world of the gospel, to fully penetrate them. They wanted to be Christians, but they wanted to have it at arm's length. So the church, in this case, was more conformed to the world than conformed to the image of Christ. And so we're going to be, over the course of the series, forced to ask ourselves some very hard questions as a church and figure out where we deal with and how we deal with some of the same things. Hanging over the entire letter is that verse, verse 2. It's a reminder and a warning to the church, sanctified in Christ Jesus, made holy in Christ Jesus, through the work of Christ Jesus, called to be holy. So you're made holy in Jesus, you're called to be holy. And the, the tension of living out those two things. Well, look at the outline in your worship folder, and you can see there what problem Paul is dealing with today, particularly in chapter 1 and then again in chapter 3. And I want to note something at the outset. I was struck this week at how many rhetorical questions Paul asks in these verses. And Susan read them uh, very well as questions. But what's funny about the rhetorical questions is they are laced with a lot of sarcasm. So again, uh, the Apostle Paul is... uh, condoning sarcasm. Those of you that know me know that that is of great security when I go to sleep at night. Uh, Those of you that don't, I I tend to be a very sarcastic person. And if you, like me, tend to be sarcastic, then it should comfort you to hear the Apostle Paul being sarcastic. But what he's doing is he's being sarcastic to prove a point to the Corinthian church. Uh, And hopefully, we're going to get that out today. So look at the outline. First, we're going to take a look at the problem, which was a problem of division. How does that happen to us today? What's it look like today? Secondly, the root of that and this identity crisis that tended to take place. uh, The root cause of divisiveness and quarreling. And then this answering the question of why we establish these pecking orders and these parties within the church. So how we do in the first point, why we do it in the second point, and then thirdly, the grace of unity. How do we get healed of it and move toward uh, being unified as a people? So first, the division problem. We'll look at verses 10 through 12 there, and Paul describes the problem. No one can accuse uh, Paul of beating around the bush. He launches right into it. After verses 4 through 9, and he says this, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. It's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you. What I mean is this, that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. So the problem is one of division, and he calls on them to be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And that word united in the Greek language has this sense of fitting together, almost like a fabric that is being sewn. It's it's seamless. Think about marriage. How healthy or how, how would a marriage work 
where the husband and the wife are not united in their decisions or their problem solving or their finances. It, it can turn ugly very quickly, right? Marriage is about a union. It's about two becoming one. You are no longer an individual, but you are tied to this other person. And the problem for the Corinthians was, as individuals, they were coming together and they were forming these parties, and it was destroying their unity. Paul says that the church is to be unified because he knows that quarreling, divisiveness, is like a cancer. In fact, the word he uses for quarreling here is the word Eris, who was the Greek goddess, the sister of Ares, the god of war. So the word really is this sense of battle strife. We're not talking about a mild disagreement here. We're talking about quarreling and strife that has profoundly divided the church. It makes the the FSU, UF, or the Alabama-Auburn rivalries (laughs) seem mild in comparison. I mean, we're talking about something very significant here. Again, I want to give you a little bit more background. The city of Corinth in 146 B.C. was destroyed by Roman forces. But once it became an empire, uh, Julius Caesar, the first emperor, decided to rebuild it as a major colony for the empire. And the reason being was that it was located on an isthmus. And that isthmus provided it uh, a a great deal of exposure to the Mediterranean, to the peoples around. So it became a trade hub. And because it was a trade hub, it became a melting pot for all kinds of different peoples and cultures. It was almost like an ancient New York City. Very cosmopolitan, lots of different people, lots of different languages. But there are three main ethnic groups Romans, Greeks, and Jews. And most likely, Paul is referring in these verses, particularly in verse 12, if you look there, uh, he's referring to ethnic divisions, representative of those who would follow him, being a Roman, Apollos, who was a Greek, Cephas, who was a Jew, and that's Peter, uh, Peter's Jewish name. The Corinthian church most likely had this pecking order, just like the city. It had various social strata that people fit into. And as a result, people got pegged. I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas. The Romans were on the top of the pecking order, since they were the greatest in number. The Greeks were next, since the city was culturally and historically Greek. And then Jews were on the bottom, as they were a minority throughout the empire. Uh, except, obviously, in the area of Judea. But the question for us, in looking at this verse in particular, verse 12, is what are the pecking orders we've established today? What are the ways we label each other and develop parties within the church and society? And as you can imagine, it's a breeding ground for self-righteousness, right? Whatever party you identify with, whatever set, whatever group you're a part of, um, the most literal expression of this is our nation's political system, right? And you know how that's worked out. I mean, we're we're as divided as we ever were as a a nation. Uh, The United States, very, very, very disjointed and ununited, right? I want to give you two examples, uh, one from within the church and one from outside of the church. And again, the examples or the subjects that I'm picking in and of themselves are not bad, It's when they become primary identities and we create parties as a result that we need to be on the lookout. 
So one from within the church uh, that tends to be very common is your choice of, choice of schooling, right? Uh, we label each other according to the way we've chosen to school our children. It might be a public school, it might be private school, it might be homeschooled. And you get pegged a certain way, right? And so we're grouped in that uh, grouping. It will become a badge that we wear, and pretty soon our identity can get wrapped up in that. Which in the case of schooling, in essence, means that our identity is wrapped up in our children and what we've decided to do with them. Now, again, I'm, I'm not saying there's anything, anything wrong with having different philosophies regarding schooling, but the warning of the passage is that it can easily become a means of division. And when it does, you know you've stepped over the line. When we develop parties, when we begin to identify ourselves primarily by that, we know we've stepped over the line. Outside of the church, sadly, this can be, this, this characterizes some, some of us in the church too, uh, but it's it's a big thing in our in our culture, and that's health and fitness, right? And so you you've got people that go to the gym. Oh, what, what kind of gym? What what sort of workout plan do you do? Well, I go to Gold's. Well, I'm a CrossFitter, or I'm a this type of gym or that type of gym. And then of course we've got all the diet plans. What diet are you following? Oh, I'm following the South Beach, or the Atkins, or the the P90X diet or my personal favorite at the moment, the paleo diet. You know, because of course, why are you following that? Well, that's the way we were intended to eat, dummy. You know, you see, see how that builds. Lots of self-righteousness that can get worked up in there. And in our culture, of course, women have to look a certain way, men have to look a certain way, you have to dress a certain way, you have to drive certain cars, live in certain places, and so forth. And what you do with your body and how you care for it uh, is rampant all over the place. And so we develop labels and we develop parties as a result too. And you get pegged and then pretty soon your identity is completely wrapped up in how well you take care of yourself or how well you don't take care of yourself. Division's a big problem. But what's it produce if you jump down on the uh, page that has the scripture reading on it to chapter 3, Paul goes into a little more detail there where he says, brothers, I couldn't address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. So he's describing a a church where divisiveness and quarreling are the order of the day. He says, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you weren't ready. And even now you aren't ready, for you're still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? The results of the division problem are jealousy, strife, rivalries, dissensions, parties. And Paul says, as long as the Corinthians are more defined by these things than by the gospel of grace, they are immature, they're infants in Christ, they're people of the flesh, they're behaving in a human way. It's the way people who are ruled by the flesh behave, not those who have received the grace of God in Jesus. Well, what does jealousy and strife look like? Well, jealousy, another word for envy, can manifest itself in a number of different ways. You become envious, 
with respect to, to, uh, to our kids. Well, her kids are smarter. Their kids are better behaved. My circumstances. I love my job. I love my life. Your life stinks. Your job stinks. You must be miserable. Right? Money. I have, I have things and, and you don't. Therefore, I matter more and I'm more important to you. And when, when that's the, the aroma of your life, the people around you certainly will begin to envy and have uh, jealousy in their hearts toward you. Money leads to privilege. Privilege often leads to power. And we begin to really dislike one another as a result. Or it might be giftedness. I begin to envy you because you're gifted in a certain way that I'm not. Or you have an ability that I want. number of different ways. But jealousy and strife are produced by this divisiveness, this quarreling, this dissension. And as a result, the body of Christ is fractured. The church is not one. And Paul says, we've got a big problem. Well, what's really going on here? The root of it is an identity crisis. The Greek in verse 12 suggests something like this. For me, I identify with Paul. For me, I identify with Apollos. Each group in the church apparently had a different identity from which they drew meaning and significance. No matter whether it was their ethical background or a a specific rhetorical giftings of a leader in the church, whatever the cause was, the point is, underneath all the party spirit and bickering was an idolatry problem. The idolatry led to an identity crisis. Go back to verse 2 of chapter 1. Paul says, you are the church of God, sanctified, called to be holy. Paul begins by reminding them of their identity, and yet there's division. So what's the root cause? Pride. Pure and simple, pride. Paul says to them, as long as jealousy and strife exist among them, that they are acting more human and more fleshly than they are sanctified and holy. Sanctified, spiritual. They are defined more by the values of their culture than by the values of the kingdom of God. And so he says, pride has no place in the church, and yet it is the very foundation of quarreling and strife. Because I want to define myself and create an identity rather than rest in the one God has given to me through Christ. And that working, working, working to establish that identity produces a great deal of pride. I want you to think about this. What kinds of things provoke jealousy in your heart? Chances are you grow envious or jealous of someone else because they have an identity you don't or they are identified with something that you aren't. But just think about that. When's the last time you got jealous? What was it about? What caused it? What precipitated it? Listen to the beginning of chapter 4 of the book of James, where James says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions, your desires are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Do you not know 
that friendship with the world is hatred against God. James is very black and white. He says those passions, those desires at war within you produce quarreling and strife and it makes you a friend of the world rather than a kingdom citizen. Our desires and our passions are how quarreling and divisiveness get going. Our desire to be right, to be noticed by the important people, to have influence and clout, to be seen as with it. It's those desires that drive our behavior. And so if I want a, repu- a good reputation, a great reputation, okay, and I discover that you have a better one, I'm just giving you a for instance. I want a great reputation, I discover you have a better one, or what I perceive to be a better one then I will engage in, you've all heard this term before, character assassination. Okay? James calls it murder. Character assassination. And when I engage in that, I'm trying to bring you down in order for me to be lifted up, at least in the eyes of the person or the people that I want to like me. Right? Caring about your reputation in and of itself is not wrong. But it's when that care becomes your chief identity and all-consuming passion. As Drew mentioned last week, it's when you want to be worshipped rather than worshipping the only one who's worthy of worship. The bottom line is, it's the ideas and the people and the activities we most identify with that reveal where our heart's affections lie. And whatever or whoever we've given more attention to than God is an idol. It's something that takes the place of God. It holds ultimate value or meaning or supremacy in your life. And that idol, in turn, feeds pride as we seek to elevate ourselves. And in order to elevate ourselves, someone else has to be brought down. And thus, division and rivalry and envy become the order of the day. So a question for us is, if you consider yourself a Christian, then where or what are you most tempted or prone to? to define your identity with other than the gospel of grace. And if you're here and maybe you don't consider yourself a Christian or you're investigating it, what in your life would you say you're religious about? Chances are that thing, that person, that habit is bordering on or has already become an idol in your life. Something that you have elevated above the place of God. The Corinthians, you see, were more concerned with being identified by their ethnicity or by their favorite leader than being identified with the foolishness of the cross of Jesus Christ. And as a result, their pride and their divisiveness destroyed their ability to love one another. And so the Apostle Paul makes an appeal for unity, which requires love. Uh, But how do you get there? How do you get healed? Well, look there under the third point of the grace of unity, the grace that has to come in order for unity to exist. Last month, during the season of Advent, we walked through the sections immediately following this uh, section in chapter 1, from verse 18 all the way over to the end of chapter 2. Christmas, that is the God of the universe taking on human flesh as a baby, reminds us, and we heard this every week in one, uh, one way or another during the season of Advent, Christmas reminds us the wisdom of God seems like foolishness, it is foolishness, in the eyes of the world. 
And see, part of the problem of the Corinthians was that they didn't want to be seen as fools. So that kindled pride, which led to the division described in the text. But the apostle offers something completely different. And I want to uh, quote another commentator who said, said it like this, Paul offers the church a wisdom that lifts up the humble and humbles the proud, a wisdom that builds up the congregation rather than puffing up the individual. He offers a wisdom that squashes individualism, elitism, and human pride and counters factionalism in the church. This, this different factions, different parties. Paul says the way to get rid of jealousy and strife is knowing and becoming wise. But the trouble is, the wisdom he's talking about is based on the foolishness of the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, the cross levels everyone, and that's the only remedy to division, because the cross humbles everyone out of their pride. No one can escape its indictment, right? The cross is a marked sign to the world. You are a broken sinner in need of grace. Sin had so uh, corrupted the world, and you were part of it, that Jesus had to die. The cross exposes us as selfish, sinful fools in need of grace. But it doesn't stop there because at the same time, it elevates everyone. Because, you see, we we once boasted in ourselves, but now in the cross, our boast is in God because of the person and work of Jesus. So it humbles everyone down to the same level and yet exalts everyone at the same time. I referred to verse 2 of chapter 1 earlier. I have a couple of times. Paul says to the church that they are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be holy. But what follows in verses 4 through 9, and that's where we began the text today, is a reminder of the past, present, and future realities of salvation. So let me go back, and I want to close with, with, uh, with this as we look to Paul's reminder of the gospel in these verses He says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. So that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Those are the reminders we need. Those are the things we've got to keep in the forefront of our minds to heal the divisions and rivalries and quarrels among us. And so I want to ask you three questions that really come out of these verses. Have you received the grace of God in Christ Jesus? Notice, He says the grace of God is given to you. You don't earn it. You can't work for it. You don't have to fit a certain category or measure up to get it. It is free. Have you received that grace? But secondly, do you live as if you are spiritually lacking? Verse 7 says, You are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So in the past, you received the grace of God. Currently, he says, you are not spiritually lacking as a result. 
But do you live that way? Or do you live as if you're spiritually lacking, like you've got something to prove to God and everyone else? You're trying to make up for that lack. And then thirdly, are you competent? Do you live confidently in the faithfulness of God to sustain you? Or is it the false promises of idols that keep you going? Do you approach God as Paul says here, uh, you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, look at verse 8, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless. Do you live as if you are guiltless in Jesus before God? That is profound. Because it says, you're no longer guilty. You can approach God with a clear conscience in Jesus Christ. As we sang earlier, my life is hidden with Christ in God. In chapter 13 of this letter, which we'll get to um, down the line, Paul writes a, a very famous chapter. It's been read in uh, many, many weddings. You see it on posters and in uh, inspirational books. But I want to hone in on verse 4. And you don't have to turn there. I just want you to listen to this description of love. Because this is where the church, the Corinthian church, was lacking. And it's what led them to have the problems they were having. Paul says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. And so I would submit to you our only hope in becoming people whose lives are characterized by that kind of love is knowing the love of God for us in Christ. As 1 John says, we love because he first loved us. Division and quarreling and factions produce envy and strife, but it's love that produces unity. So I want to close with uh, verses from Colossians chapter 3, another letter of Paul to another church. This is his wish list for the church. So let me read these verses to you. Paul says, Here, that is, uh, in Christ, there is not Greek and Jew, there is neither circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. All the factions are demolished. But Christ is all and in all. So then, put on as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, Okay, there's that identity. Holy and dearly loved. Put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Uh, Let's pray that God would clothe us with these graces, with these characteristics uh, as a church, and that in turn we would be bound together in the unity of love and perfect harmony, and that would be our witness in Winter Haven and Polk County and to the ends of the earth. So let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for bringing Jesus to a broken world, to a world full of division, and quarreling and strife, and making possible 
unity, harmony, peace uh, by his work. And we pray that you would continue uh, to shine upon us and create in us a sense of unity, that it would be a unity that's sourced out of the fact that we are holy and dearly loved, the fact that we have been sanctified in Jesus and that we're called to be holy as a witness to a watching world. We pray uh, that what would characterize us most would be our love. As the old hymn goes, they will know we're Christians. They will know we follow Jesus by our love. So come and do that work by the power of your spirit. Change us into a people who are not characterized by division and parties and rivalries, but one that's characterized by a oneness, by a unity, by a peace that only the Lord Jesus can bring. Come and do that work for your sake, for our city's sake, for our world's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, amen. It's, it's grace that has brought us together in Jesus, the grace of God in Jesus, but it's also his grace that will sustain us and keep us together. Uh, that's our only hope uh, for the unity of the body, uh, to stay in harmony through the bond of peace and all the language the scriptures use. Uh, it's a tall order uh, because we're all different in many, many ways. Uh, but as you go and you receive the benediction, you receive a promise that as you go, he goes with you. Uh, and so where you're tempted uh, to see quarreling and strife and dissension become the order of the day, uh, recall these words uh, and beg for grace. Uh, and together, uh, we can accomplish the work he's given to us. Receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.